Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, we'll stand and read verses 8 through 15. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Please be seated. The angelic face, that's what this morning's message is entitled. Of course, this sets up what's coming in chapter 7 where Stephen will demonstrate he knows the word of God as well, if not better than they do, where he will point to what God's word says and not what the rabbis say, and then they'll kill him. He is teaching us, because you look at this short section, you say, well, what can I get from this as a Christian? Well, Stephen is teaching us how to be a target for Christ and make it count. <clears throat> What is an angel anyway? Well, aside from being God's agent, they, the angels, are those who see the face of God as he is in heaven, which is a big deal for us here on earth. In fact, in Peter's first letter, he points this out concerning Christ, but it's true of the Godhead overall. He says, whom not having seen, you love, though now you do not see him. Yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. I like quoting this. I like bringing that verse verse up because there's Peter who knew Jesus well, walked with him, saw him, was around him, was very close to him. And yet there he is worshiping with believers who never saw Jesus, and they were giving Christ the same love with its gusto as as much as Peter was giving, and it struck him. Well, the angels, they have seen the face of God. An interesting statement Jesus makes concerning children. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Well, of course, that tells us so much about God's care for those who are just too little or unable to care for themselves. He dispatches his angels. But it also tells us about the angels, that they see the face of the Father in heaven. And this is the face that they saw on Stephen without really knowing what it meant. To them, it was essentially, and the writer is essentially this, to to cut to it, they saw the innocence so there was nothing in this man for them to hate, and they hated him nonetheless. Stephen was seen as an angelic faith, face because of the Spirit of God that was in him. He was full of the Spirit. We just read that. And he was an agent of God, therefore, to preach and to reach those without Christ, to make converts. And in making converts, he made enemies. Well, there's something for me. Regardless of what I may have going on in my life or not have going on in my life, because, you know, not to achieve what you want in life can lead you to hating life. 
feel like you've been cheated. It's not worth living. You just can't get what you want. And we all have to face that to some degree. Some do better than others. But it is up to all Christians to prevail. Well, to preach and to reach those without Christ and to make himself a target of all the miracles in the Bible, conversion of the soul is supreme, and it is a miracle. And the easy proof of that is you all know someone who is not a believer, who you pray for, you want to see become a believer, but you feel they are so far out there, they're almost unreachable to God almost unreachable to God. And if they're going to get saved, it's going to take a miracle. And it's kind of eye-opening when you consider that there are some Christians that fuss over the gifts of the Spirit and pass this one right by. This is the big gift. This is the big deal. It is supreme. Reaching lost souls, that is what Stephen was engaged in, and that is what caused him to go to heaven as still a young man. It is the one thing converting souls that the angels in heaven applaud out loud. So much so that Christ pointed to this. There is joy in the presence of angels. Luke chapter 15 verse 10. The angels of God over one sinner who repents. Because the angels get it. And again this is the face this man shows to his killers. James said this, he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Yeah, converting the lost souls is a big deal. That's why the church needs to have teaching so that the Christians can become stronger and be uh, what we would say um, up to grade, qualified and requalified. This is true out in the world. If you have some skill, you have to, you know, work that skill. If you are in law enforcement or the military, you have to, to go spend time at the range to make sure that, you, you know, you, you can still find the target and hit the target, that you're competent enough with your weapon. Well, it's the same for Christians. It's just that we don't go every six months or every four months. We have an opportunity to go, well, here twice a week, other churches perhaps more or less. And those, again, who are interested in the conversion of souls effectively put on their back a big bullseye for a hell to target them. We should not be intimidated by this. Stephen, he didn't flinch at any of this. We should understand that we are in God's hands. And again, no matter what you have going on in your life that's going wrong in your life, you are still basically accountable to preach the gospel any chance you get, no matter what. This man will be preaching the gospel as they're stoning him to death. This is Satan behind this persecution of this man. Satan, if he cannot defeat your soul, if he cannot stop you from getting saved, then he will attack your body if he can. It's the whole story of Job. Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and that he does not stand in truth and that when he speaks, and it's a lie, and he's the father of lies. He's the one that produces these things. When Stephen was chosen as an overseer in the early church, he did not know he was going to die preaching to convert souls. But that's where it went following the lead of the Holy Spirit, because it tells us, again, he's full of the Spirit. doesn't leave much room for anything else when you are full. And this did not matter to him, because once again, Christ was worth it. And to live, to live a life, a long life in Christ, in a relatively peaceful environment, it requires that sometimes we consider these things and remind ourselves, that whatever comes our way, it's worth it for Christ. Here's this servant clad in spiritual armor, first facing these people, doing it right. And the Holy Spirit says, I want to write this down. I don't want to forget this. Not, of course, anthropomorphic. I don't mean literally God does not need to be reminded to write something down. 
But it captures for us in the language we understand when something is important. I want to write that down so I don't forget it because it's that important. And we call it the Bible. So when Paul writes about the spiritual armor that Stephen is wearing and he will wear to his grave, when he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, that means armies of wickedness in heavenly places, the spiritual realm. Then Paul says, therefore, because we are wrestling against these, we are in contest with them, at war with them, take up the entire armor, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand. Well, again, Stephen is clad in this armor, and he is doing, he is standing, and he is doing all to stand, and he wins. They kill him, but he wins. He is the victor. We'll come back to that in a moment. Stand, therefore. Paul echoes that great point. Having girded your waist with truth, this separates us from everybody else, from every religion on earth. We pass the truth test. They don't. So he says, your waist girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That breastplate sticks out there. You know, you watch a... You know, a movie with the Roman centurions. One of the first things you see is that, that breastplate. It's right there of righteousness. Because Satan wants your body. Because your body is what carries the righteousness through this life onto other people. Without that body, what good are you? It's an interdependent relationship with God. God said to Moses, what is that in your hand? It was his staff. He said, put it on the ground. It turned into a serpent. He told him to pick it up again. He grabbed it again. It became a staff. God said, this is the power available to you, and I need you to do things for me. There is an interdependent relationship that we are to have, Moses, and I need to get it going. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I like that he put that preparation in there, because to do anything effectively, you have to be prepared. You've got to put some work in it. Very few things in life that are victorious are just accidentally achieved without preparation. It takes work. We are under the curse, and by the sweat of your brow it will yield its fruit. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Above all. Well, he's full of faith, because he's full of the Spirit, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Had he not quenched those darts, he would have taken back his confession. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that Jesus was Lord, but he meant every word of it and took back none of it and quenched their darts in the process and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which a lot of churches get rid of. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, (laughs) no weapons allowed. You, You cannot conceal carry in this place, nor open carry. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. Perseverance means keep on going. Enduring, endurance means suffer while you keep going. Endure while you persevere. I don't like it, you don't like it, but it's worth it. That's what our faith does. But I have to add this caveat. The flesh has armor too. The spiritual man has armor, so does your flesh. These two war against one another. Therefore, it's not enough to dress like a believer. It's part of it, but it's not enough. You've got to go further. You've got to put it to use. Engage in the fight. You say, yeah, I do, but I keep failing. But you keep fighting? Yeah, well, then that's what it means to keep the armor on and keep fighting. Because the ones that say, I've had it, Christianity is not what I expected. They become apostates. They become lost. And so now, with that background, we come to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, in the scripture, to be full means to be controlled by. He's controlled by the Spirit of God. That's why they can't withstand his wisdom. He knows how to apply the word. He knows how to tell them, "Mm, no, that's wrong, to their face. A lot of times we don't do that. 
I just saw a headline that said a, a lot of Christians are against these transsexual things. But they're not Christians, a lot of people. But they're afraid to say anything. Well, that's not having done all to stand, therefore stand. That is not to be full of faith. We are to say, no, sorry, don't believe it. Fire me if you must. I'm against it. This is where we are. It's not new. Christians have been persecuted through the ages for disagreeing with people who side with Satan. The outcome of him being full of faith and power is effective service. Now, I say to myself, I know how to be full. I just have a hard time staying that way. It seems to just leak out or evaporate or something. I've got to keep doing it over and over again. And as the years stack up, I'm either going to get good at knowing about this or I'm going to become weary to the point where I, <clears throat> my effectiveness is diminished. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the outermost part of the world, which means that's us because the apostles could not reach the whole world. Following generations, succeeding generations have. And so just a brief review again of this man in verse 3, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In verse 5, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 8, full of faith and power. In verse 10, it says, irresistible, an ir irresistible man of truth who they could not withstand. What is not written, but is captured in the end, in chapter 7, in the 60th verse, 60th verse, that all of these things gave him courage. And that courage gave him mercy. And that mercy gave him grace. And that's why he was able to face the stoning like a believer and call upon grace and mercy for those executing him. One of the people that he was praying for and did not even know he was praying for them, who was present through this whole process, was Saul of Tarsus, who would become the, the great Apostle Paul. And I do believe Paul never forgot Stephen. How could he? Stephanos in the Greek. There are two words for crown in the Greek language. Now, New Testament comes to us through the Greek language, a very rich language. Diadem is one. That's a, that is a royal crown. That is the crown that Jesus wears. The diadem gives us our English word. That, that Greek word, dia, diadema, gives us diadem in the, in the English. Then there is Stephanos. That's not the royal crown. That's the winner's crown, the crown of the victor. You participated in an event and you won. You get, get to receive the winner's crown, the Stephanos. His name means that. And as we've covered so many times through Scripture, the intention of the name in Scripture is to reveal the intended nature. You can have a child and you can say, I'm going to name this child Timothy. Well, what is the motivation behind naming that child? Was it maybe another family member? Maybe you just like the name? Or because of the nature of the Bible character, you want it associated with your child so that they can reflect that behavior as they move through life themselves. Not that it's wrong to name someone after a family member or something like that. I, my, my point is name and nature go together in Scripture. And this man happens to have a name that fit the nature of his walk with Christ. Interesting, Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, the church that was persecuted, where people were dying in that church. You contrast, which church would you rather attend? The nauseating church at Laodicea or the persecuted church at Smyrna? There were other choices, but just the thought. Jesus said to that church, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Well, stop right there, Lord, because I fear everything I'm about to suffer. I, I mean traffic, lines, anything, I run out of sugar. I, I, I don't want to suffer at all. Jesus continued, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the Stephanos of life. I will give you the crown of life. The victor's crown. The winner's crown. You will be the winner. You can inherit a diadem. A royal crown. Solomon inherited a royal crown. 
But the only way to get the Stephanos is to earn it. The only way to receive the victor's crown is through endurance, perseverance with endurance in Christ. Faithful in life, faithful to the death. These are the lessons that we have here. You come across a little chapter of the, like this, you say, this section, this little paragraph, say, I want to hurry up and get past this. And even, he has a long sermon, Stephen does. I don't know how we're going to get through that, but we will. I don't know how we're going to get through this morning. I've taken 20 minutes up so far. But to be filled with the Spirit of God means that we do not pretend that truth does not matter. Truth is everything. The truth of Christ. We don't act like it's secondary. This arrival truth out there. The Bible overlooked this concerning human beings, but here we can produce something else. I reject that thought. thought. I reject that kind of approach to Christianity categorically, line by line. I reject that. I don't care what the credentials are of those who introduce it. I reject it. I have the scripture. I can enjoy a movie about Christianity, but I've got the Bible bottom line. I don't depend on those things. But I can, again, I'm not trying to smack down anybody. What about, you know, the Ten Commandments or something like that? To be a Christian means that we do not imagine that the spiritual gifts are greater than truth. It is the truth we are after. When we talk about receiving a gift from Christ, it is so that we can employ it to be effective for him. Not so we can show it off. If that is your thought, then you need humility, which is not a gift. It is a work, a work of the spirit and the heart. As Christians, we do not see truth without action. We believe we are to learn things so we can do something with them. Imagine the lumber truck pull up to Noah and say, well, here's all the lumber you need to put that thing together. And he never put it together, but he did. Jesus said, by this, you will, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, that's a toughie, because that makes me dependent on God. And that makes God, in this sense, dependent upon me to act on being dependent on him. hope I didn't lose you in any of that. As a Christian, we do not make room for non-Christian views when it comes to what the Bible says. Views about God, views about man, which is life, eternity. As Christians, we do not fail to see that truth is a responsibility. We have to employ wisdom. We have to know how to apply truth. I can know that somebody is going to hell that works where I work. That's a truth. But that doesn't mean I walk up to the person and say, hey, by the way, you are going to hell. That's not very wise or loving or being let. Well, maybe the Spirit might tell you, give it to him. <laughs> he does sometimes, but... It's rare. We know that truth does not move forward without Christ because it comes from him. We believe the gospel is moral and spiritual dynamite. And you shall receive power, the Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. You shall receive this stuff to blast things apart. Yeah. It says here, he did great wonders and signs among the people. This is the first mention of a non-apostle performing signs. What an honor. In verse 9, Then there arose some uh, from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. These are descendants of slaves, likely in the beginning captured by Pompey about 60 years plus before Christ was born. Pompey comes to Jerusalem, takes slaves, and sells them and uses them, etc. And these are their descendants, and some of them were slaves themselves and set free for whatever reason. And they formed an assembly, a church, a synagogue. Synagogues probably go back to after the Babylonian captivity or in the Babylonian captivity. Now, no one's absolutely sure. There's some hints in the script, in the psalm. But anyway, they are freed, form a synagogue, like Stephen, these are Hellenists. They are greatly influenced by the, the Grecian culture, uh, the, the, the language. They speak the language. They have the Septuagint for their uh, dominant source of scriptural information versus the Hebrew Bible. And 
enlists some of the locations, the first two from northern, North Africa, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Remember Simon the Cyrenian who bore the cross of Christ? Uh, those from Cilicia. Paul was from Cilicia, which tells us not on one of the hints that he is here. He's present in this group. We get other reasons why we know, but that's a big one. And Asia. Now, about getting into why this is not Asia as we understand Asia today in the Orient, which is what Asia means, but this is Turkey. And the way it got that name goes back to the Seleucid kings, and it's just uh, not going to take time to talk about that right now. Well, these folks, these uh, Greek-influenced Jews had their own synagogue. Stephen attended that. That's why he became overseer of the Hellenistic Greeks, uh, Jews. Paul is in this group, Paul of Tarsus, even though he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, and they're in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21, verse 9, Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of, uh, of no mean city, no average city. All cities are mean, but not all average. Uh, incidentally, for those of you who are looked down on city slickers, which they make it easy, the Bible starts off in a garden, but it ends in a city. So just keep that in mind. Good restaurants in cities. Back to this. They quarreled with Stephen because he dared to disagree with them about Messiah. But the difference is he used the scriptures and he used current events together and they had nothing but tradition. That's all they had. They had scripture, but it didn't carry it to its conclusion. Again, to be a Christian is not to value, value the approval of those who disapprove of your Christ. I mean, in other words, oh, you, you don't believe Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God? Well, maybe you got a point. No, you got no point. I don't agree with you on anything. I'm not giving you an inch on that. And if, if, you, if you think you've won the argument with, with me, you're still wrong. You've lost. Because there are greater facts, and even if I can't pull them out, somebody else will. I'm going to get my big brother. You come back. I'm going to get my pastor. You're going to clean your clock, man. Pastors, one of the disappointing verses in the Bible, pastors are not to be given to violence. Man. <laughs> you got to remember that sometimes because, you know, poking, poking. Anyhow, the first century Jewish Christians... They had to demonstrate from the scripture that Messiah fulfilled the prophecy and that Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. That was their, their struggle. The first century Gentile Christians, the ones that became Christians because of the work of men like Paul and Silas and Barnabas, they had to debunk the false teachings of the Greek soap opera. The, you know, the, the, that's what it was. The, the gods were just, they just tacked on another story. It was all dramatic. It was never ending. It was a lie. Hum, uh, again, you know, humans on spiritual steroids. That's the Greek gods. But us, we, what are, what are, what are, what are we facing? What sticks out? Because those two things stuck out with them. For us, is keeping out the leaven. That is a full-time thing. You mean a Christian, you say... Where did you get that? Well, online. <laughs> Where we get all our theology from. I got it from the comment section. I can't stand the Christian comment section. I don't ever look at those things. I always walk away with my knuckles dragging. I say, man, I feel, I'm going to read the Bible, all of it, right now. Fix them. Revenge is sweet. Anyway, it is not. It is not. It just creates a condition of, that you, you can't satisfy. Anyway. Even if your marriage, your health, your wealth, your happiness is failing, you are still required to keep the leaven out. You are still required to say, here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do? What we tend to do is say, we got all these fires. Not right now, Lord. I, got, I just got too much going on. Well, with that approach, no, nothing will get done. Uh, Satan wins. All Satan has to do is light a fire in your life, and that, you're out. We overcome. We overcome by keeping the major things major and the minor things minor. In verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and 
the spirit by which he spoke. So he, of course, he's saying, the Bible is saying, it's not that he was just wise. That wisdom that he had came from the Holy Spirit. He's not just a smart guy like Gamaliel. Failing to see the truth is not as lamentable as failing to be moved by the truth once you're faced with it. That's their condition. They were faced with the truth. They couldn't defeat him. They're like, man, you, he's got another point. Oh, he's winning the argument. Maybe he's right. Maybe you need to stop trying to win the argument and listen to what he's saying at some point. These opponents could not overturn the truths that he hurled at them from their Bible. But they refused to allow truth to convert them. That's fanaticism. An irrational dedication to something. In verse 11, and they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's Calvary all over again. It's the same thing our Lord faced. Well, we can't beat him with righteousness because he's outrighteousing us. So let's try to come up with some unrighteous stuff and get rid of him. Who wants to belong to that kind of religion? Where their truths are better than our truths, so let's kill them. And there are religions like that. Islam, one. You got everybody afraid to say it, but it's true. They refused. Verse 11 where it says they secretly induced men, uh, officially now rejecting the Spirit of God, falsifying charges. Way to go, zealots. That's how you do it. Stick to a religion that can't win the truth test. Lying in order to murder in the name of religion. What does that make that... What, make, what, what does that religion become? If you belong to a religion where you say we can lie and we can kill to protect our religion, what does it make that religion? They hated Stephen in the name of God, conspiring to kill him in the style of Jezebel. That's what Jezebel did in 1 Kings 21. Her husband came by, I want Nabal's vineyard. I love that. I just got to have those grapes. And you're the king, she said. What are you sulking about? Don't worry about it. And she hires, of course, these rat finks, and uh, they go out. And I'm sorry, that's giving credit to them. Anyway, they go out and they do the same thing. We heard Naboth blaspheme, and he took him out and they killed him, and the king took his field. And for that, the prophet Elijah was dispatched to tell them that the king Ahab would die and Jezebel would be eaten like do- by dogs, and I like telling that all the time because it's just gory Bible stuff that's true. Anyway... I would not want to be a religion that resorted to silencing people who they could not uh, defeat with truth. And so unable to prove him wrong, unwilling to admit that he was right, they said, let's take him to court and let's have the courts do him in. Because that's what it meant in those days. And not only in these days, I mean, back in the 16th century, same thing. If you lived in England during the English Reformation and you didn't agree with Rome, you would get killed. If you, got, if you were too successful, uh, William Tyndale was one. You know, they strangled him at the stake, and then they burned his body. That's hate. Well, maybe someone said, no, it was mercy. You know, we keep him from, yeah, well, others coming later didn't enjoy that kind of mercy. Mercy would have been letting him go. <laughs> that would have been mercy. Well, anyway, back to this. Exalt, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ can drive Satan's people crazy. Makes them mad. And uh, mad as in insane. And here it is here. Spiritual deception is the worst thing that can befall a human soul. Satan is, again, he is after your soul, the soul of human beings. If he cannot keep you from coming to Christ, he will try to attack your body, which includes your life, of course. Yes, right now, Satan is ramping up again his UFO delusions. Uh, You know, my bottom line on UFOs, I believe that they can be seen and are seen. I also believe they are demonic. They are 
strong delusions. I do not believe people who say, I've been on that craft. I believe they are under the influence of Satan. And this will be a strong argument. You can read about its judgment in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, because they did not receive the, the truth, but follow the lie. Uh, I will give them over to strong delusions. And it's going to get stronger. It is, um, you know, what would, so if a UFO landed, first thing you'd have to ask them is if they've had their vaccinations. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, who knows what kind of germs they brought in here? How long do you plan to stay? Are you planning to take jobs from Americans? Uh, you know, you have just questions. Why should they be exempt from these? Anyhow, against Moses. <laughs> There's a lot of questions you'd ask them. You know, just, come on. Who has that much ability to travel phenomenal speeds, make right-hand turns, or right-angle turns, right-angle turns without slowing down, and yet they don't bother us? Yeah, right. They just show offs. That's what you're saying. Anyhow, um, I know. Now, if any of you have been abducted, <laughs> you might want to see one of the pastors... And he'll help you out. <laughs> now, I'm not saying I, if you've seen UFOs. I mean, I believe people have seen them. Some people I like very much have seen them. <laughs> anyway, and I believe them. Uh, where was Oh, against Moses and God. Okay, so now they're charging him with altering the permanence of the law. You know, God said the law is not permanent. My God said... Through Moses and Jeremiah, collectively, my law is not permanent. Uh, the law given to Moses, that is, from Mount Sinai. It is not permanent. God's law is permanent. And there are elements of it that would be modified. And uh, this is what Christ came to do. And he said, think not that I've come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And they perceive that as, no, you can't do that. Well, let's go to, we'll get to Moses later in a couple of verses. But now we'll take Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says Jehovah, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So that's all Israel. And this new covenant that he is <clears throat> speaking of, this is a New Testament, because that's what a covenant, it, that's what it is. Um, this was... Something that they conveniently look, looked past. It says against God. Well, because they were, he was, they were exalting Christ as the Son of God. So that's against Yahweh, according to them. Verse, six, verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. So the Hellenistic Jews managed to get the Jerusalem Jews to side with them against Stephen. That's what's going on here. Uh, we saw that, you know, that rift between them amongst the Christians in the first part of this chapter. Well, it also existed amongst the uh, practicing Hebrews also. The, the Jerusalem Jews looking down on, on those who were influenced by the Gentile cultures. It says they came upon him, seized him, brought him to the council. They arrested him. Uh, Saul, again, is part of this number. We see him in chapter 7 when they stone Stephen and Saul is guarding the clothing because as a, a member of the Sanhedrin, as a Pharisee, uh, he was not to participate in the actual stoning, but he could watch everybody's garments and go through the pockets. It's, that was the benefit of it. Anyway, verse 13, please don't think that that's true. Um, maybe there was one or two that couldn't resist the temptation, but... No, they didn't have pockets like that. Anyway, verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So another wave of liars. <clears throat> Being religious does not make a person good. That's what we're seeing here. These are all religious people, and they ain't good. Not this batch. They valued religion over righteousness. That's why they... Uh, when he resorted to, to lying and murder to shut up the opposition because they couldn't get him on the law of God. So they come up with a rabbinical law to get him. They also valued tradition over truth. So, you know, as much as I love Fiddler on the Roof, of course, that is the problem. They're tradition-minded as portrayed in that uh, movie, play, etc., uh, and not truth-minded. 
and that that is the, the, the disappointing part of the whole experience. Verse 14, <clears throat> For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Well, this is Herod's extended temple. He just, you know, expanded Zerubbabel's the temple, which was the second one. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Zerubbabel comes back, builds the temple. Uh, then Herod, who was a monster, uh, he comes along and he expands it and turns it into this one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Josephus writes about how beautiful and the gold on it, how you couldn't look at it a certain time of day directly because of the, of the sun shining off of the gold and the marble, etc. They are twisting Stephen's words, words that Stephen got from Jesus concerning the work of Christ. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He says it's going to be destroyed. And in about 35 years from the point of these events, it will be fulfilled. Um, he, so Christ predicted its destruction. He never said he's going to destroy the law, but he's going to take it to the new covenant level. And, and that is exactly what he did, the law of grace. So according to their testimony, Stephen publicly proclaimed God's transition. Well, that's important for me as a Christian because I don't want to see anything you know, fall off the table as I'm reading the story. I want an unbroken witness from Adam to Revelation. So that's why we're interested in, well, what does that mean? What does this mean? Unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, little children do that. What's this? What's that? It's bedtime. That's what it is. So anyway, (laughs) I can even remember annoying my brothers and my older brothers. You know, like, man, when's this kid going to go to bed? They had to take shifts with me. That's serious. At one point, they tied me to the sofa. So I stayed up bouncing around, and they slept on the sofa because I wouldn't go to sleep. Uh, anyway, sorry, didn't come here to hear about me. Uh, anyway, he, Jesus, announced and performed that Mosaic law would be subservient to Messiah and his grace, which was part of the law from God, the new covenant. He proclaimed the coming judgment to destroy the temple in Jerusalem but also gave that law. Now, here it goes back to Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses said, Yahweh, or Jehovah, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And then he pronounced a judgment. If you don't listen to him, you're doomed. Well, Christ is that prophet. Stephen understood it. Paul will get it. The others who didn't receive it, what's their problem? Peter had already preached this back in chapter 3. Stephen will get back, he will quote this verse again in chapter 7, part of why they were so enraged with him. Jesus warned, he said, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Well, that's Antichrist. The Jews are going to, going to fawn over Antichrist. When Christ said he comes in his father's name, he means I'm not breaking the law. I'm fulfilling the prophecies. Messiah's work goes beyond the Jewish people. And they weren't ready for this. In fact, when they become Christians, they weren't ready for that. That's Paul's whole struggle with trying to say, listen, we're no longer trying to live like Moses as Jewish people. They came to this agreement is, okay, just don't eat things strangled, things sacrificed, stay away from this, because it's just too much for the Jewish culture to... To, to go to church with Gentile Christians who are doing these things. We'll get to that in Acts 15. But Jesus said this about the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Moses' words to the woman at the well, the woman of shattered romances. She had five of them, and Jesus pointed it out and said, the one you're with now is on shaky ground too. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Now, that, that wasn't derogatory. He was getting her focused on him. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. (gasps) You know, she's part of that Sumerian religion that worshipped on um, Mount Ebal, I believe, Grism. Anyway, he's saying neither that one or Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship 
We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. That's why Paul said to the Jew first and to the Gentile. It's that natural progression. It is that unbroken witness from Adam all the way through Malachi, given to us by the Jewish people. And without that, uh, there's, a, there's a major breakdown. But we, it, it, we don't have to be without that. And so, yeah, we, he's saying the Jews, who are the righteous Jews, they, they know what they're talking about. Then he goes, said, goes ahead and says, but the hour is coming and now is when the, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see the emphasis there, that born again spirit and the truth that goes with it. For announcing this transition that Jesus said was coming, Stephen was killed. And the New Testament church is just getting started. At Stephen's death, the church does not close up. It's just beginning. Wait till they make Gentile converts and they start coming into the church. And wait till Paul starts saying Sabbaths, diets, circumcision is not important. What, what is important is the meaning behind those things, what they are intended to tell us. That's what is important. And they uh, followed Paul around trying to kill him for that. Verse 15, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Again, it's the face of an innocent person. The, the, the angels don't have this, you know, if they weren't innocent, they couldn't see the face of the God in heaven, in his throne. It is the face of one, the face of one who loves God, the God we have not seen with our eyeballs, but we have seen with our spirit nonetheless. Why is it surprising that we have other senses, you know, that we can sense things in the spiritual realm by faith, that we can lay hold on things, you know, they, the, the psychiatry and psychology world, they boast of the sixth sense. Well, we've got one. It's faith. And it's the substance of things told for, the evidence of things not seen. And by it, the elders found favor with God, obtained a good testimony. And we could see how they live by faith, as Stephen is. He becomes one of those elders. Not necessarily meant in Hebrews, but to us, yeah. The face of one who could not be swayed because of love. That's Stephen's face. They could not intimidate him. They could not break him down. They could not sway him. Neither man nor devil could move him from Christ. That's the face. That's the angelic face of Stephen. Yet it was not enough for them to repent. But it haunted some of them. One of them, Saul of Tarsus. These people were zealous for wrong things. But that face... You just can't get it out. This is one of the reasons why Saul, it says, was still breathing threats of violence. And Saul worked havoc against the church because of that Stephen guy. I've seen such a face. I like telling this story because it's how I came to Christ. So my, my second oldest brother drew close to Christ, born again. And he just wasn't very knowledgeable yet of the word, but he knew enough of the gospel. And my reaction was, oh, you think that God has us here for him? How selfish is that? That was my stupid theology. Where'd you get that? Oh, the trash can. And what was his response? He just looked at me. He just like he's sitting on the steps, and he just looked at me with this face I've never seen. I'd never seen this face before, not even in my mom. And your moms are like angels. And it bugged me. It haunted me. I'm going to wipe that smile, that smirk. Whatever that thing was, I'm going to get it off his face. I'm going to show him his Bible is a bunch of lies. Where to start, where to start, where to start. So I got a Bible. And I started reading it. I'm going to find it. I don't know how I ended up in one of the Gospels. I'm not sure if it was Matthew or Mark. It was one of those two. But that was God. God was just saying, well, well, well doofus, instead of leading you to Amos the prophet, <laughs> which you would get none of, how about we start here? And so as I'm reading, trying to wipe the look off his face, I see that Christ is God. But nobody can make this stuff up. Never has anyone spoken this way before. I got saved right there, just reading God's word. 
So I know, so I have a personal experience with the face of an angel because that is what it was to me. It was a messenger, an agent of God. It was the face of, I love Jesus and I love you. I can't have that for my brother. (laughs) The neighbor can do that, but my brother? Anyway, I close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 4. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking at. The face of Jesus Christ, that angelic face. May the world see us that way. Let's pray. Our Father, we who love you, you enjoy it week after week to come to your word day after day in our devotional times, wherever we find ourselves. We love you. We want to love you more. We want to overcome those things in our life that drag us down dim the lights of our testimony and you know it and you you're so faithful with us but there are those that don't know it and the salvation of the soul is a paramount work it is a priority it must happen no matter what if you have been listening and you've never opened your heart to Christ you've never given yourself to him And you're listening because God has brought you here to this place, whether you are watching online, in the church building, or in the future listening to a recorded message. God has brought you to this place to give you yet another chance to get it right. And you know, as you've been listening, you feel the draw. Now you've got to act on it. It's not enough. It's not enough to get almost there. All you need to do is make the step, which is the confession, with your mouth and your heart. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken the law of God. I have broken your law, your rules. I have gone against you. And I want to undo this. I repent. I change. I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. No one else died on a cross to take my judgment away from me. No one else rose again to demonstrate they have the power to take judgment away from me. I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask that from this day on, you would be not only the one that saves my soul from a sure judgment because of sin, but also that you would be the ruler over my life and that dominant influence through your word, and I give my life to you right here. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer in Jesus' name, may they not be ashamed, may they not back away from it. In Jesus' name, amen.